Colossians chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Colossians 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Father, we ask this morning that you would do just what last week's text described, that you would lift our eyes to things above, that you would set our minds and enable us to seek those spiritual realities that have come with our our union to Christ. And Father, I, I pray that in a very practical way that you would teach us to, by the power of your Spirit, put to death uh, the sinful impulses that attack us, that seek to, to use our, our words and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes in ways that dishonor you. Father, we don't want to sin. God, I pray that you would put in us a great hatred for sin, that you would sanctify us, that you'd make us like Christ. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week uh, we talked about certain spiritual realities that come from our union to Jesus Christ. So once you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you are connected, you are joined, you're tethered, you're in union with the resurrected Jesus Christ. So that's real. And so because of that, you share in Christ's death to sin, so you're forgiven. Uh, Sin no longer can condemn you. You share in Christ's resurrection life. Sin cannot bring death to you. You're forever joined to Jesus' life. He is your life. Uh, Ephesians says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have this eternal inheritance, all right? So all of that is ours. Like, it's real. We're we're connected to Christ, and because of that, that's all real. And so last week, Paul said, all right, now now set your mind on those things. Like, like so, so consciously push your mind... To, to focus on and to seek after and to believe and embrace and to know those spiritual realities. And the more you're convinced of them, the more you see Jesus as being better, right? Uh, the more you're convinced of those spiritual realities, the more you're convinced that, man, Jesus is everything I need. He can be trusted. He's what's going to satisfy my soul. Uh, the happier you get in Christ, all right? So, when that happens, you have this great weapon against sin, right? So, so last week, kind of what we were comparing was, was trying to, to fight against sin through, through legalism, right? So we put the Oreo up there, and it kind of illustrated uh, sin. And we said, okay, we can do this a couple different ways. One of the ways we can do it is by saying, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. Don't eat the brown Oreo. Don't eat the brown Oreo with the creamy center. Don't eat the brown Oreo that smells so good, you know, don't, don't, don't eat it, don't eat it, and then we can make rules, you know, I'm not going to have anything round in my house, because it will remind me of Oreos, and I'm not, I'm not going to uh, have anything black in my house, because it reminds me of Oreos, you know, we, we, can, we can make all those rules, but in, in, the, in the end, all we're doing is thinking about Oreos, right, and so Paul is saying, okay, first of all, lift your mind to things above, 
once you have discovered a superior pleasure in Jesus Christ, once, once you, you are feasting upon all that he is, all that he's done, all that he will do, once you're embracing those realities, pretty soon you've forgotten about Oreos, right? Because Jesus is satisfying your soul. And kind of the, uh, the illustration we gave is the way to, to not ever eat Oreos again is to have chocolate layer dessert available all the time, right? If you have something better, you don't want Oreos. Like, they're, they're not appealing to you. And, and so, so that was last week. Now, verse 5, okay, says, put to death, therefore. Okay, so the, the, the therefore is, is critical because it, it's saying, okay, everything you just read, everything we just embraced by faith in those four verses about uh, our union with Jesus, setting our minds on things above, seeking those things that are above. Christ is our life. He is better. He's going to satisfy our soul. Okay, so therefore, now verse, verse 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. All right, so therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. In other words, if you're setting your minds on things above, then you are at war with the sinful impulses of your unredeemed humanness, your, your unredeemed flesh. Uh, we're at war with those. If you're united to Jesus, then you're at war with your sin. So, so you can't, you can't do both, right? You can't lift your eyes to things above and embrace all that Jesus is and say, Jesus, you're everything I need. And at the same time, allow sin to take control of your words and your actions and your thoughts. You can't, you can't live with those. Like both those can't be happening at the same time, right? So, so if you're gonna set your mind on things above, then, then when the sinful impulses arise in you, you've got to kill them. Sam Storms, uh, he's a great writer, he's a pastor in Oklahoma City. He said this, I, I really like what he said. He said, you'll either be reckless or ruthless with your sin. There is no middle ground. So, so in other words, you're going to be one of those two. You're... You're either going to be reckless in the sense of you're not setting your mind on things above, but rather you're, you're, you're looking down here, and so you're going to be really reckless. You're going to be really careless with, with sin. It's going to rain. You're not, you're not going to go after it. You're not going to kill it. You're not going to put it to death. You're not going to deal with those impulses. You're going to let those things live inside of you and take control of you at times. Or you're going to be ruthless with sin. And there is no real middle ground. So, so if these realities belong to us, then we will kill the sin. We'll put it to death that we find ourselves entangled in. Now, notice, notice put to death. Verse 3. I really like this. Paul does this in Romans 2. Romans 8, 13 is one of my favorite verses um, where he says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So, so Paul uses this over and over again, this, this image of Killing the sin in you. And, and I like that a lot because I think that's the way you've got to look at sin. It, it's a threat. Uh, it's a threat that's got to be dealt with with, with extreme prejudice. It's got to be dealt with um, very zealously. Uh, you, have, you have to put it to death. Now, now I want to answer a question. I don't know if you're asking this or not, but I, I asked this, and, and so I, I think you might be. I, I think when you're trying to kind of set this passage up theologically in your head, you say, oh, whoa, 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 hold on, Pastor. In, in verse 3, last week we read, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And, and, and about a month ago, in chapter 2, verse 12, we read, hey, having been buried with him in baptism, in, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the power of the working of God. And, and maybe you know your Bible and so you're thinking, okay, but remember Romans 6, 6? 
It says, for if you've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Galatians 2.20 is a verse we memorized uh, in March uh, in our memory program. And it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. So here's my question. Are we dead or not? Right? So, so you have these verses that say, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then you have these other verses, like verse 5, that say, put to death these things that are earthly in you. And, and, and so do you see the question I'm trying to ask? Are, are, are we dead to sin or are we not? Are, are we dead to sin or do we got to kill it? Yes and yes. Okay, that, that's the answer. Uh, we are dead to sin. Uh, in our union with Jesus Christ, we have really died to sin. So the Holy Spirit lives in you now, and 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 you your, your sin is dead. It, it, it's forgiven. It's canceled. If if you die right now as a believer, you're not going to hell. I mean, that's real, isn't it? It doesn't get any more real than that. So it, 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 you have died. Your position in Christ is that you share Jesus' death, and He died to sin, and therefore you have died to sin. Okay. But there's also a practical aspect to this as well. And so let, let's go back to last week and, and, and illustrate it there, because uh, uh, we already talked about that, and then let's move on to this week. So last week we said, all right, because of my union with Jesus, where am I? I'm seated in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 2 told us, right? I'm seated in the heavenly places. I've been raised with Jesus. Like, I, I'm joined to Him. My life is hidden with Christ and God. All that is true. But then He told us, but practically... You've got to push your mind to embrace those things. Right? So, so it's true, but you, you, if you're not careful, you're going to live down here looking at Oreos. Right? And so you've you got, you got to put, you got to seek the things that are above. So there's this practical reality that, that's got to match the positional reality. And so, so this week, what we're saying is, I am joined to Jesus' death. That is a reality. Uh, I'm not going to go to hell because I am joined to Christ as a believer. That, that, that there's no pretending about that. It's real. But I still live in this broken world. And, and, I, and I'm still in this broken body, this unredeemed humanness. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm still to this very moment bombarded with temptations. And what Ephesians calls deceitful desires. Lying desires, like, like you, you want things, you, there's these sinful impulses to want things that the scripture says you should not want. Okay, now, so, so I am dead to sin, that, that is a real thing, Christ has taken care of that, I'm joined to his, his death, but at the same time, I'm also still in this world, I'm still in my old unredeemed humanness, my, my mind is broken, my, my flesh is broken, and because of that I'm susceptible to these temptations, to these sinful, deceitful desires. All right, but, but I have the Holy Spirit. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, as those impulses arise, because I am connected to Jesus, I can now kill them. I couldn't kill them before. They, they ruled me. All right, but, but now that I am joined to Christ, now that I have the Holy Spirit, now by faith through the word of God, I can put to death, those things that are earthly in me. Are, are we, are we, are we, am I making sense? Okay. Are, so, 
I've heard people try to describe this in a lot of different ways. Uh, I kind of think of it like this. So let's say you're fishing. You're fishing and you catch this great big fish and you're, you're really excited. And so you unhook it from your pole and you run up, you know, 50 yards up the, up the bank to your campsite, to your picnic table. And you put that fish on your picnic table showing everybody. Okay. Now here's the reality about the fish. He's a goner, right? Uh, he is, he is 50 yards from the water. He's, he's done. His life is over. He's no longer going to swim again. But that fish can actually still hurt you, can he? I mean, I mean, he can still, they've got fins. They'll slice your hand sometimes and they'll flop. They, they can still, now he's a goner. He's got no hope of living. He's dead. Okay. But, but he can still hurt you. He can still flop. All right. But if you reach over and you grab that, uh, that, uh, little sledgehammer that you use to pound in your, your, your tent stakes and, and you take that fish and you wham right on his head, he's dead. Right. He's not going to flop anymore. That, that's the end of the flopping. OK, so so it, it's, it's sort of like that. Right. Like like sin is done in your life. If you're joined to Jesus, where are you going? You're headed to be with Christ. All that Christ has accomplished is yours. But, but sin is still in the death throes. Right. And you're still in this under and it can still hurt you. And so what Paul is saying is you, you got to You got to get the sledge. And as those impulses arise, you, you've got to kill them. So they're done. It, it's interesting. I don't know how you look at the sin in your own life. So, so I guess what I'm asking is, when you have that selfish impulse arise in you, and your mouth wants to latch onto that and say something mean, or when that sinful impulse arises in you and you, you want to go somewhere you shouldn't go or watch something you shouldn't watch or... Or be prideful or what? How do you handle that? Okay, so Paul is very clear, you must kill it. Now, notice, it doesn't say cage that. Put that in a cage. Or, or it doesn't say put it in time out. I think that's what a lot of people want to do with their sin. Their sin limbos as well. I know that's probably wrong. Stay over here in the corner, okay? He didn't say that. He, he does not say, you know, give it a stern talking to, maybe even ten lashes. He doesn't say, put it in prison. He says, kill it. He says, put to death what is earthly in you. Now, I just point that out because there's a radicalness here that must happen. Okay, You're not going to be successful with these sinful impulses that arise unless you're convinced on killing it. You've either got to be convinced you're going to kill it or not. Okay, and, and, and you won't be successful unless you're that radically decisively, intentionally going to kill it. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? I, I, I think this is a great passage. He's talking about lust. It comes in the section on lust. He says in, in 529, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of the members than, than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is saying the way that we stop lusting or coveting with our eyes is by gouging them out and throwing them in the trash. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's, that's really, that kind of, that goes against what he says about the heart and what he says about where sin comes from. I think his clear point in this passage is you must deal radically with your sin. You can't coddle it. 
Too often we, we, we want to coddle our sin. Too often people want to like gradually move away from it. Or, or make sure it's not too far away. Or make sure there's still a way back. You can't, you can't live the Christian life that way. You've got to have zero tolerance for the sin in your life. You've got to have a whatever it takes, what, whatever I've got to do to put that debt to death, I, I must do it. If there's certain places or activities or books or media or websites that, that I, I, I've got to put down, I, I, then I, I must do it. If I've got to cut those things out of my life, then, then I will do it in order to kill the sin that arises within me. Notice that the first list that he gives, he gives two lists here, and we'll deal with the second one uh, the next time I'm with you. But he says in verse 5, he says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And he says, Sexual morality, that, that is the act, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But then he says, Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which all move toward thoughts and desires. Now, I, I think that is significant, because here's the reality. What, what the Bible's telling you to do is not wait till you're in the act of sin to try to stop it, but it's telling you you got to battle sin when it first arises. All right? So, so when, when sin first wells up, when there, there's the first impulse of sin, the first thought, desire, that's when you kill it. Here, here's, here's a truth that I think we all know or have experienced. When it builds momentum it becomes harder and harder to stop, right? So has someone ever like done something harsh, unjust to you? And, and so you're, 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 you're thinking about taking revenge. You want to say something really mean back, okay? But you know you shouldn't, right? But here's what we often do. Instead of killing it right there by the power of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God, embracing the promises of God, instead of doing that, we're like, well, I'm not going to say it. But then you go ahead and think about it for about three hours, right? You go ahead and mull that around in, 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 your, in your soul about what that person did and how terrible it was and how you really ought to have revenge. Okay, you know what happens the more you mull that around, the more certain you're going to act on it at some point. And actually, you already are acting on it. And, and, and so, so he moves from action to desire here, telling us that you got to put to death even your desires, even your thoughts, that, that's when you're most successful at putting to death what is earthly in you. You can't be friends with it. It'll kill you. I, I, I like what Paul says in Romans 8, 13. He says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. All right, it, it's trying to kill you. Have you ever thought about your sin in that way? I mean, it really is trying to kill you. Your anxiety, your, your unnecessary worry, your, 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 your pride, your... Your, your anger, your lust, your greed, your covetousness, it's, it's trying to kill you. You can't be friends with it. it it's going to harm you. You say, well, I'm a believer. I know that I'm forgiven. It's still going to harm you. I remember I had the, I had the interesting uh, thing happen in Kansas City. When I lived in Kansas City, I worked for a grounds operation. And um, <laughs> funny thing. It was, a, it was a real weird thing that happened. I couldn't believe they did it. But they took the boss of the operation and they demoted him and made him just a common worker like, like the rest of us. You know, so here's a guy that's been running the place for a long time and he gets demoted to be a common worker. And uh, he, he stayed there and worked. I, I don't think he had a lot of other options. Um, and so it was an interesting thing because he no longer had authority over, over us or kind of the company. But man, he did a lot of damage. Uh, 
You know, uh, so, so he no longer had the authority, but oh, he, he did a ton of damage to the operation. And, and that's exactly what sin will do in your life, at life of a believer. Maybe it can't send you to hell, but it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. So sin is put to death only by the power of the Spirit of God. We know that from Romans 8 again, verse 13, really helpful verse. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we know that it's by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by embracing the promises, by lifting our... Last week, lift, seeking those things that are above, grabbing onto those spiritual realities that we are able to put to death what is earthly in us. Now, let's talk about these sins for just a moment. And then I'm really, I really want to talk to you about covetousness today is really where we're going to go. But let's, let's talk about the sins for just a minute here. Okay, so what is earthly in you? Then he gives some examples. He's going to give more the next time we're, we're in this passage uh, here in a couple weeks. But he says, sexual morality, uh, what is earthly in you? In other words, what's your unredeemed humanness, your flesh? And then he gives some examples. Sexual morality is the first one. Now, sexual morality is a word that means fornication. Uh, the best way to describe this is any sexual relationship, any sexual act, any, any sexual practice outside of the marriage relationship. Now, I know, I know that I do this almost every time we hit one of these passages, but I'm going to do it again just because, man, I, I cannot figure out how to do this better. But I'm, we're, not, we're not hitting the mark here, okay? So any sexual relationship outside of marriage, what is marriage? Marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman that is public, okay, that is uh, covenantal. Um, man, I, 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 I don't know how to... Here's what's happening, okay? We are saying this as a church. We're saying this in the United States very loudly. And again 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 and again, people who claim to be born again believers are somehow feeling like this doesn't apply to them. I can't tell you how often people who sit in my office and tell me, I love Jesus, I'm committed to him, you know, and, and, but, and then when we ask about your relationship to this person and it finally comes out, yes, we have a sexual relationship. And then there's some disconnect there. And I hear all kinds of, I don't know, just crazy explanations. Pastor, we're married in our hearts. Well, that's great because you know what? I'm, a, I'm, one, of, I'm one of the starting five on the thunder in my heart. Did you know that? I am. I, I'm a thunder player in my heart. Do you know what that means? Nothing, right? That means I'm pretending. But somehow, like, like smart, professional, like college educated, Bible reading, Bible memorizing adults who have been in church somehow have convinced themselves that there's this way around this. That there's not any sexual act outside the bonds of covenantal marriage is sexual immorality. Impurity. It's a more general term for sexual perversion in in, in general. So this would include homosexuality or even lust, impurity, uh, pornography. The next word, passion, is a word that means lust. It means, would include, again, pornography, pornography. uh, romance novels, evil desires means basically craving sinful things. Um, all of them are in that whole general area of sexual sin. So it's interesting. He gives us four words that, that describe some sort of practice of sexual sin. And then, and this is a really 
interesting part. Man, I I want us to talk about this. And then he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All right, now, now, the word covetousness, your Bible may even say greed. Does it say greed? Some of your Bibles may have greed, which is a great translation, actually. Either one of those are fine, okay? But, but, but especially when you think of greed, you always think of money, right? And, and, and rightly so. That, that is very common where greed manifests itself. But, but covetousness or greed, this word means to want things we shouldn't want, to have desires for things that are against God's law, or just desiring them in a way that puts that above God. It's, it's the sin of always wanting more. Okay? Now, John Piper uh, defines covetousness as this. I like this. Desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. And so most of the time we apply that to money. We apply that to, you know, I, I, someone who, who, who's greedy in the sense that they've got to have more and more and more and more. And, and they can't be content with God. God is not enough. Jesus is not enough. They, they, they've got to have this other, this, this possessions, money, position, whatever, in order to be happy. It's, it's putting other things in the place of God. It's putting desires above God's desires. It's, it's wanting something so, thinking it's so necessary, so important that, that, that it displaces God. Basically, it's saying, God, you're not enough. I, I can't be satisfied with this. I must have more to be happy. Now, no coincidence that covetousness is linked with sexual morality. So what, what I'm telling you is, is the fact that Paul says sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, all, all dealing with the sexual realm. And then he says covetousness. That's not a coincidence. He's not just like shooting out random sins here. Those are linked together. In other words, covetousness is linked to sexual morality. Prove it. Okay, I will. All right, so Ephesians 3, no, 5. Ephesians 5, listen, it's not an accident that he just did that. Okay, because Ephesians 5, verse 3 says this. But sexual morality... In all impurity, same words, or covetousness, must not even be named among you. You're still like, ah, still can be coincidence. Okay, keep reading. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. We'll get to that next week. Which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, listen, listen, sexually immoral or impure, same words as we find in Colossians 3, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance to the kingdom of Christ and God. Not an accident at all. Okay, so, so now let's think in our minds, what is the connection between covetousness and sexual sin? Well, I mean, obviously you could say, well, covetousness is kind of the root of all kinds of sins because it stirs up other sins. Um, when, when, you, when you want money so bad you're, you're willing to steal it, then the Tenth Commandment is actually the thing that's spurring you on to, the, to break the Eighth Commandment. Or, or you want something so bad you're willing to lie for it. You know, so we, we can just say that in general, and, and I get that, and I believe that's true. But I think it's more than that. I, I think covetousness is when we say this possession, this person, this sexual activity is what will satisfy my soul more than God. You see, it's idolatry. Because it's saying, I, I, gotta, I gotta have this to be happy. The opposite of covetousness is, is this. Jesus is enough. That's the, that's the opposite. Like that's not being covetous. Not being covetous is saying, Jesus is all I need. I, I can trust him. He will satisfy my soul. It's Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth I desire nothing beside you. That's the opposite of covetousness. 
So why is it linked to sexual morality? Because sexual morality essentially says, God, I am not content with what you have prescribed. So, so God has said, okay, I've given the sexual relationship to the, to the boundaries, within the boundaries of marriage. Here's where it's good. Here's where it will, 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 will be lived out in love and in, in, in intimacy and, in, in, and safely. When a person is covetous, they're like, no, no, I, I want more. God, what, what you have said is not enough. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Sex within marriage is not enough. I need sex before marriage or outside of marriage in order to satisfy my desires. I need sex uh, with someone else's spouse or, or sexual gratification through pornography or flirting or romance novels. It is rooted in, I'm not content with God. I don't trust Him. It's idolatry. Now, let me show you something interesting. So what's the most famous sexual sin in the Bible? David and Bathsheba. When you agree? Agree? Most famous sexual sin in the Bible. So when we go back to that sin, okay? So go back to 2 Samuel chapter um, 11. You know what? I, Brian, I told you 11. That's wrong. <laughs> it's actually 12. I just opened up my Bible. It's not 11. I think I put it on there. It's actually 2 Samuel 12, 7 through, through 9 is what, what I want to read. So it's, it's, it's when, after David has committed sexual sin with Bathsheba, and he has um, uh, he's hit it, and now Nathan the prophet has confronted him. And listen to what God says to David when he's confronting David about his sexual sin. So the Second Samuel twelve seven, Nathan said to David, "You are the man." Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I so here's what God says to him: I anointed you as king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Okay, God's telling him what all that he's done for him. Verse verse eight. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Did you see how God confronted David? So David... Has, has committed adultery with this woman. And as God confronts him, God's like, David, I gave you this. 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 And if that hadn't been enough, David, I'd have given you more. Why have you despised me? What, what's he saying? He's saying, David, the root of your sexual morality is you don't think I'm enough for you. You don't think I will satisfy your soul. You thought you, you, had, you had to go outside of what, what I've given in order to be satisfied. David, that's idolatry. Let's look at it in the realm of money. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses uh, 17, uh, 18 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, so it's the same principle, just with money. He, he's saying, man, don't, don't set your hopes on what money can provide. Set your hopes on God, who richly provides all that. So it's the same thing. What, what, why are people covetous with money? Because they don't believe that God will satisfy them. Why do people always want more and more possessions? Because they look up at God and say, you're not enough, man. You're not enough. You, 
You can't stop. I know you sit in the heavenlies and, and, and I know that all the heaven and earth and everything that's created is yours and you spoke it on the existence and you sustain it by your glory. And I know you're the best and, and perfect being, but you're not enough. I got to have this car. It's idolatry. It, it's, it's the root. It's the root of sexual sin. It's the root of greed. It's, it's the root of most every sin. Which is why, and man, we don't have time for this now, but oh, we're getting going to get to it. Which is why Colossians is going to machine gun us with gratitude, right? So we've already seen it two or three times, and I've just skipped over it because the real mother load's coming here in chapter 3. But here, coming up in chapter 3, he mentions it in a row every verse. Every verse. He'll talk about this, and he'll say, come back and be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful. Be grateful. And, and the reason for that is the gratitude is saying what? You are enough, Right? It's the opposite of covetousness. Okay, we're, we're getting behind here. Let, let, we get, let's move ahead. So, so covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, what are the reasons you ought to be putting this to death? Here, here's a couple reasons at the end that, that, that ought to press this home. So why should you be putting to death your sin? Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I think it's going to be a little bit confusing to us, right? Because I I think most of us are thinking, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought thought we're not under the wrath of God. So let's get to that in a minute. But for a moment, let's let's just talk about the wrath of God. So I'll answer that question in just a second. But but what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's anger and judgment against sin. All right? And, and, And that is coming. Second uh, Thessalonians is a great passage on this. Chapter two, chapter one, verses seven through nine, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as, as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey God, who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I mean, that's the wrath of God, inflicting vengeance, inflicting punishment, destruction. Okay? That is coming against sin. Against these particular sins? Yes. But against all sin. But, but in this context, against these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And it's just. It, it should happen. I was trying to think of examples of, of, the, of, the, of how we should respond to the wrath of God. So him and I are kicking these around. Colt's taking a bath last night, and I'm sitting in there with her. And, and, and um, uh, we're, t- we're talking about, okay, so like maybe when you're speeding... And then you see the sirens, and you're like, oh, no, wrath is coming. But you know, that's not a good illustration. Can you know what a lot of us would be like? We'd be like, I'm only going 64. You know, I knew where I'm only going, you know, 75. Or some of you would be like, I'm only going 88. That's just a little, you know. I mean, like, we're, we're, we, we would rise up against that. So, man, I was racking my brain trying to think of an example. Because here's the thing about the wrath of God. It's absolutely right. Like, when it happens, everybody will be like, yes, it. I mean, there'll be people that are terrified, but, but we'll know it's right. Because the wrath of God is God's righteous anger against sin. And so here's the, the illustration I came up with. I hate it. I hate it because it's terrible, but this is the one that I thought of. So let's say we have children's church up here. And all these little kids come up here and sit down. And, and I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing children's church, right? And um, one of... Uh, one of Casey's boys is up here, and he won't sit down. Like, he keeps getting up, like, when, when I'm trying to teach the lesson. And I, like, lose my temper, and I grab him, and I 
throw him down, you know? Like, even when I say it, like, what, what goes on in your gut? You're like, oh, no, right? Because you know, oh, that was bad. And then something bad is going to happen. Like, Casey's going to kill me. He'll just pull out his revolver, you know? <laughs> right? Like, like do, do you see what I'm saying there? Like, but at the same time, like, do you feel sorry for me? Like, no, that was dumb. Why did you do that? And, and so it's like an action that immediately we know, oh, my. Wrath is coming, and it's going to be bad for you, and you deserve it. Okay, that's the way you should feel about sexual immorality. You see, that should be in you as a believer. When you're tempted to it, and you start taking steps toward it, you should think that. Oh my, God's wrath is coming on on the sexually immoral, and it's right. But now... See, now we're in this quandary because you're, you're asking, well, but, but hold on, Pastor. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what about what we just read last week in chapter 3? If you've been raised up with Christ, we're, we're, if you're a believer, you're joined to Jesus and, and, and you're seated at the right hand of God and, and, and your life is hidden with Christ and God and you're connected to Jesus. So how can the wrath of God come on you? Well, it, it won't if you're a true believer. You're like, so I don't have to be afraid of the wrath of God. No, you do, because if you stay in your sin, then you're not a believer. Okay, you follow me? If, if you live in unrepentant sin, habitual sin, then verses 1 through 4 don't apply to you. You're not joined to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's not in you. All right, so, so let, draw a circle up here. Okay, this represents sexual morality. Okay, if I'm in there, if I'm in the circle... And I'm, I'm just going to say, the wrath of God is coming upon this sin. If I stay here, what does that mean? I, the wrath of God is going to be on me. I was not connected to Jesus. Here's what the Bible is going to say over and over and over again. If I'm a believer and I step into the circle, even if I start to get close to the circle, what's going to happen? Conviction of the Holy Spirit, conviction of the Holy Spirit, conviction of the Holy Spirit. Ooh, I'm going to get out of the circle. I'm going to repent. I'm going to put that thing to death. I'm going to get the hammer, get the mallet, put it to death and get away from it. Because I'm joined to Jesus and I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to him. And so there's going to be this fervent repentance. Now, this is an important point for our day because there are multitudes of people who are loudly disagreeing with what I just said. Okay, so there's all kinds of people in the American culture, even the American church right now, who are going to say this. Oh, no, no, no. You, you can live here and still be a believer. God loves you, and he knows you're, this is especially true with homosexuality in our culture right now. You know, you're just, you're built that way. It's okay. The word of God's antiquated. You, you, can, you can be here and still love Jesus. Okay, now Paul it's interesting because Paul warned us that people would say that exact thing. Go back to Ephesians. In the same passage we've been reading, Ephesians 5, uh, so verse 5 and 6, listen. For this, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. So there's going to be people that are going to deceive us with, what are empty words? Words that don't mean anything, actually. They're not true. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Isn't that fascinating? That 2,000 years ago, Paul says, Hey, you, you live here, the wrath of God is coming on you. And don't let anybody deceive you, because there's going to be people out there that are going to tell you, no, that's not true. But don't let them deceive you. Believers will not stay in habitual sin, because they're connected to God. They're connected to Jesus. The Spirit of God is in them. There's going to be conviction, and they are going to put to death what's earthly in them. That, that sinful impulse will arise, and, and conviction will come, and they will repent, put their mind on things above. Jesus is better. I believe you. I believe you, Jesus. So I'm going to put that to death. And the, here's how the Christian life ought to work, okay? So, so at first, you get right over to the line, or maybe even cross the line. Ugh, conviction. Put it to death. Put it to death. And, and as you grow as a Christian, you know what ought to happen? You start to look that way, and you're like, nope, put it to death, right? And pretty soon, like, your, your head just tilts a little, what? No, put it to death, Right? I mean, you, you shouldn't like go across the line over and over. No, I mean that, that that's not the way. That's not the way progress works in the Christian life. In fact, no, notice that he says progress is certain to happen. So, in verse, this is the last verse, by the way, verse seven. In these these sins, you too once walked when you were living in them. What does what does that imply? You're not now, right? You're not now. And, and by the way, that's everywhere in the Bible. That's, that's in Ephesians. Uh, let, let's, let's go to a different passage this time. How about 1 Corinthians 6? So uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, let me go ahead and read from verse 9. Verse 11 is where I, what I want to show you, but I think we've got to get 9 to get the point. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Like, like he's not saying that if you've ever done those sins, you can't go to heaven. You can't be joined to Jesus. No, he's saying many of you were exactly that. You lived there. But, verse 11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Man, how cool is it that not only is it possible to have victory over sin, but as a Christian, it is the normal experience of the Christian life that you will have victory over sin. You used to live that way, you don't anymore. Why? Because you put to death what is earthly in you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I, I ask you, God, to do the work of conviction that we desperately need. Father, right now, as, as we are before your throne, Father, we, we are submitted to you. We are, are thinking about you. We're looking to you. Father, your word has been spoken to us. Father, we pray that you would root sin out of our life. God, that you might show us our, our sinful impulses. And God, that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to put them to death right here, right now this morning. God, I pray that we might put to death any kind of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity, any kind of, of evil desire, any kind of covetousness, any kind of discontent, thinking that, that you're not enough for us, that we need something else. God, help us to put those things to death. Father, next week we'll, we'll be talking about sins of speech and slander and malice and anger. And 
God, I pray, enable us, Lord, to put those things to death. Father, we love you. You're our king. God, lift our eyes to things above. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.